in the stations and swing parks. Of my mother, I stole some money. Had a treat with a bottle of martini. Was so sick I couldn't walk or sit. Since then, I've not touched it. I won't bore you with tales of being greedy. I'm just into CB. I'm into CB.
You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Roman Miradov. Uh, his latest book is, in a sense, Lost and Found, from uh, the fine folks at Nobrow, as well as some of his other works include Picnic Ruin from Retrofit, and uh, his series of self-published zines, Yellow Zine, which is up to issue five, I think? Yeah, that's right. I feel like saying volume five, almost. <laughs> well, they're increasing in size and quality. Um, which I guess the fifth one should be out pretty soon. Well, the fifth one is pretty much out now. I'm working on the sixth one. So far, doesn't have a single comic. But just a lot of a lot of illos. Um, no. Um, I don't know how to call it. I I like to call it non-comics just to annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean if I were to be a little more pretentious, I would call them visual poems. Or visual puns, or did something between sequential narrative and non-narrative? It's kind of an abstract, or are they visually? Well, in a sense, I mean they look abstract, but they have very concrete stuff behind them. Mm-hmm. They're they're not the sort of thing that Aiden called us. You know? Um, just thinking on the abstract and kind of how you use that, and maybe I'm kind of starting off wrong, but I was thinking about um. Uh, Matadi's approach mm-hmm. to abstract, and maybe think a little bit of of your approach to it, where that kind of visual sense of um, kind of a pleasing abstract, mm-hmm. in a way. I don't know if he's someone that's a bit of interest to you. Um, I do like Matadi. I think um, well, I like him more early on. Now I don't look at him a lot, but I'm pretty sure he must have had an influence in, on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean by pleasing? <sighs> this thing is, I can't think of the exact words I want to use. Wait, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the question. That was part of a sentence. Oh, then, sorry. Then you sighed. <laughs> now I can't remember what I wanted to say. But what do you mean by pleasing? I suppose what I wanted to say is uh, it's not entirely untrue in the sense that I, I see it as cutting of smuggling my slightly weird ideas under the guise of a pleasant image. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that's something that Seth does a great deal, and I pretty much stole that approach from him early on. So, you know, if he drew his Clyde fan stuff in the same style that the writing is, he would have fewer people reading it, I imagine. But it looks like a very inviting book, you know, and then you open it and it's just an old man walking around for 50 pages, mm-hmm. uh, which seemed to me like a brilliant idea. Yeah, you know, it's I I've heard you talk about Seth a lot and kind of um but there's something that I don't quite feel your work is connected as some people assume mm-hmm. in a way because one of the things about Seth is it's very kind of particular point in time. Like this is nineteen thirty five to nineteen fifty five. Yeah. Um where with your work I feel like it's not kind of hung up with it. No, not at all. And um, I think uh, when people pigeonhole me into sad, sad category, they're definitely making a massive mistake. I'm, um, I'm not really looking back at all at anything, and I'm definitely not. I don't think Sasson is nostalgic in his work, or at least it's not the aspect of his work that appeals to me. 
Um, but I'm definitely not nostalgic. The stuff that I look at is way before my birth, and I don't think I would be happier back then. Mm-hmm. And it's more about, um, I see all art as a process of kind of burial and excavation, or it's a kind of simultaneous deciphering and encryption. And in that sense, I do want to have a complete connection between the present and the past, and the people who are definitely extremely dead and buried. You know, <laughs> dig them up and do something with them. And it gives me enormous sense of satisfaction. Um, because I know that I will never really understand what they were trying to do. So it, it gives me uh, a greater sense of freedom, I suppose, than if I were to look back in the 90s or do some video game related stuff. Um, as, a, as for Sass, I definitely would say that the aspects of his work that appeal to me are not the aspects of his work that appeal to most people. <laughs> I have very little time for naturalism fiction in general, and he's kind of viewed as that. And I think a lot of blurbs that he writes are for people who are very naturalist and sort of slice of life, uh, which is not something I read at all. But what I love about his work is uh, just the uh, amount of repetition and his dedication to the, uh, you know, to the minute detail, I suppose. Just how you know, he examines something very closely over and over until it is completely exhausted of all meaning. And then he moves on. Hmm? And then he moves on. Yeah, and also is uh, has a kind of disdain for narrative and plot, which I very much relate to. So in a way, my work is way more surreal and abstract and so forth. But in another sense, uh, I'm very much rooted in reality. Like my my stories are not that strange at all. I never have uh, anything extraordinary happening to anyone. In fact, I rarely even have characters or plots as such. Mm-hmm. It's just that I take something that's quite mundane and what I see is quite universal, and then I blow it out of proportion so it becomes extraordinary uh, exclusively through its treatment rather than through the inherent interest in the subject matter. Now, I'll kinda, I feel like I need to rewind a bit um, as you give me this like great full... Um, thoughts on your work uh (laughs) uh i want to know a little bit about more of where you're coming from um like what what got you to this point with with understanding it's a a long and tedious story that i'll try to abbreviate as much as i can you give this the reader's digest version or something or yeah um cue in the violins so i uh, grew up I was born in Baku, uh, I'm Armenian, so my family had to leave early on because of all the racial stuff. Um, my conscious memory mer- pretty much starts in Russia and Moscow where I grew up. And um, I think uh, there was a sense of otherness that was instilled with me early on. And as I look back, there is a, this a, idea that I never had a homeland really appeals to me, actually. Because um, I was displaced at my birth, and then displaced again, and now finally I had a self-imposed exile to America, eventually. So were you, were you born in Armenia? Uh, uh, no, I was in born Moscow? in Baku, which was back oh, then. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah USSR, a uh, country which no longer exists. 
Um, so in Moscow, yeah, my childhood was, uh, you know, quite unhappy. I'm not going to go into details, and I usually don't try to do that. Try not to do that because mm-hmm. I don't want people to feel sorry for me, and buy my works on that basis. <laughs> but I certainly have. Um, I could do like a warehouse of autobiographical stuff about bad things that happened to me. But I am very much above that. <laughs> what I'm really interested in is um like how cuz one of the things I I about your work and we're talking a little bit about the abstract is um there's a philosophy to it. Yeah, definitely. And an interest in philosophers um and so you've kind of got these like two worlds bridging where you've got this really amazing gorgeous um dynamic illustration style and by and i want to clarify by dynamic um i mean the fact that it's not rooted in one thing like you're very much like i can go through an issue of yellow zine and it goes into a whole want to have a style no and 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 that that's 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 a great strength um, and so I'm wondering about this background of what you were um, going into. Um, like, was this stuff you were looking at when you were young, kind of forming your? No, not at all. Um, I have I had a really weird kind of artistic upbringing in a way that um, uh, I guess uh, I was very much expected to grow up to a man, and instead I turned out, you know, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um you're a cartoonist um not okay. quite uh, <laughs> i like to think of myself as an artist and cartooning is kind of an aspect that i do right now mm-hmm. um i certainly i don't feel comfortable among other cartoonists at all anyway um probably alienated the entirety of the listeners <laughs> that's okay poor old cartoonist right <laughs> I mean, is there anyone who listens who does wrong anyway uh <laughs> <laughs> it's a couple. No, the, but people assume that I was a big reader as a child, but I wasn't. I was a kind of a complete idiot. Um, and, uh, you know, words like depression were generally not in the vocabulary of that time of Russia of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just considered to be kind of weak, and that's it. Uh, and, you know, there there's one a couple of incidents that I've recently remembered that... Uh, really influenced me and I hadn't thought of them in a really long time um, so my parents they were um, they had this weird idea of gathering their guests around and they would recite me this poem by I think it was Agne Barto it was about a little bull he's walking down a plank and he's about to fall but he never falls but the fall and the decline is implied mm-hmm. and he's not he's not allowed the release of death <laughs> And I would start crying violently in the middle of that image. And everyone would go, oh, look at that. And also, <laughs> you know, another summer I was staying with my grandmother. And um, there was a neighborhood dog that I was very fond of. And it got hit by a car. Not in front of me, but I heard of it. And um, my grandmother, who's otherwise a decent woman, she would get her half of the neighborhood around and ask me how did Kuzi, that was the name of the dog, die. And I would tell them, you know, oh, he, he hurried across the street and the driver didn't stop. And at this point, I would burst into tears and everyone would go, oh, look at that. And uh, 
what I think is striking that these two events recurred all the time, or at least now it felt like this. You know, I don't know how many times actually they made me cry, but it was a part of childhood that stuck hugely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess to, to them it seemed like kind of a, a harmless tickling of the child's sensitive sides in some weird attempt to make a man out of him or something. <laughs> but now I think of it, I go, oh, hang on. That was incredibly cruel and bizarre, particularly the fact that they brought some strangers around to watch me cry. But then again, it was in Russia of the 90s, where making a child cry is considered proper entertainment. So I think that kind of instilled in me a love of futility and repetition and um, a certain love of tragedy, maybe. <laughs> um. But, you know, other than that, that's, like, really the only thing that I very clearly remember. I don't remember any books that I read, nothing like that. How old were you when you left home to come to America? I was pretty late. Um, I guess I was 22 or 23, 22, I think. Um, I didn't really speak much of English. I sort of, I knew it okay. But for instance, I didn't know what scoot means, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, now, when you were, you know, 22, that's like, for me, that's like when you're done college. Did you go to college? Yeah, right. I had a degree in petroleum engineering. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's I like a... some artistic intentions, but they were very much discouraged uh, early on. And... Um, I think I wanted to study English or be a translator or something like this. But again, I didn't really have a strong interest in literature until way later on. And just thought, well, become a petroleum engineering. That seems like the thing to do. And um, I mean, I was a person of extraordinary complacency to study something that I absolutely detested and was extremely bad at for five years and then work in that field for two years also not not with any particular success and I think when I realized that all my co-workers are kind of copies of my classmates and this will never end and I will probably be uh, going through the same sequence until I'm in the retirement home where um, other 90 year olds would bully me <laughs> I decided that it's time to leave it's like a Sisyphusian, oh, I'm totally mispronouncing it, Yeah. kind of struggle of complacency. And, and at the same time, this repetition appealed to me in some weird masochistic way. Yeah. Um, at that point, was music a big thing for you at all, just as like a kind of escape? Uh, yeah, definitely. Music was always, uh, I think it definitely was a much greater part for me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, especially all music sung in English seemed to me like a promise of a better place. <laughs> I know we've talked personally about Just the sheer uh, foreignness of it all. <laughs> we've talked personally a lot about uh, music and stuff, and going mm. through your ye- yellows, or was it Picnic Ruined, or one of the yellow scenes where you talk about yeah, picnic. Uh, the Bell and Sebastian's yeah. uh, If You Feel Sinister album. Um, yeah, that was a really big record for me, because... Uh, I don't think I knew any other person who liked that band. You know, here, 
basically any teenager knows it, right? It's not a big deal. <laughs> and uh, as a matter of fact, when I came here and I met other people who liked it, it instantly lost all appeal to me. And to be fair, the music got worse and worse with each album. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the last sub is just oh, absolutely dreadful. <laughs> Sentimental drivel. Um, and you know that it, when I listen back to it, it doesn't strike me as particularly good. But what I am um, still attracted to is that uh, promise of escape that it had when I was a youth. That it no longer holds for me. Mm-hmm. Um, did you so? Did you understand much of the lyrics at all? Because that album's actually really interesting in the context of. Um, I know. I think we watched you put me onto this documentary that Pitchfork did mm-hmm. on it, and the singer I can't remember his name right now. Uh, yeah, Stuart something. He was going through some stuff where he like wouldn't leave his house mm-hmm. or had a hard time leaving. Yeah, his house. I didn't know any of that, and um, somehow I guess I, I felt it in the music or something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it's it was a very different. It had an evocative feel of that Glasgow of that time, which was not Moscow. <laughs> yeah, and I remember I would stay in the university until eight or nine. Uh, we had this bizarre schedule, and I would be in this packed bus, and it was incredibly cold, and I would freeze my balls off. And I, the only thing that would um, kind of have an air of escape would be this thing in my crappy speakers, you know. And I would just cling to it desperately because it would be the only thing that has an air of otherness about it. So, so it is a, a very emotional reaction rather than an intellectual one. Yeah, no, but it's interesting because it also has, like, some particular undercurrents, too. Yeah, but, you know, I also, uh, like, during that time, I listened to a lot of very experimental music that Usually, it's one or the other. People don't listen to both. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I went to a... Uh, what's his name? One of the sort of Merzbush guys' concert and couldn't hear for a week. <laughs> like a noise show? Yeah, yeah. I saw Nurse with Wound. Uh, for some reason, all these bands were kind of weirdly popular. I mean, Coil had a show early on. Mm-hmm. I had a, a Russian-only album. <laughs> yeah, that was that. Or a compilation or something. The, yeah, the greatest hits. Yeah. They did. There was also a lot of, uh, in the 90s, there was a lot of um, Russian bootlegging of industrial mm-hmm. stuff. I think it yeah. was at Ars Nova. Right, right, was right. the record label. Um, so, you know, someone that's into the cheesy bell, Sebastian and the, uh, <laughs> the old noise. Um so but no, basically, I think, uh, you know, especially early Balance Mass and stuff, it was very much influenced by the C86 tape that he put in ages ago. And that's the only good thing that ever done. Um, and I think the uh, particularly Fall albums also really appealed to me. And what I love about it is the crappiness of that sound. It's very underproduced. And now yeah. you see a lot of bands kind of imitating that sound. Um, but th- they generally sounded badly because they didn't know how to do it. <laughs> and so now there is a kind of a construct of uh, authenticity, which is really interesting to me as a concept, but it doesn't sound that great. <laughs> now, these were kind of your major kind of links to uh, like another world. 
Um, mm-hmm. What was the ultimate choice to move uh, to America? Did you go right to San Francisco or? Yeah, I think it was uh, extreme boredom and depression uh, to the extent that I couldn't rationalize my uh, feelings anymore. Mm-hmm. I just basically applied to the cheapest school I could find uh, to get me a visa. <laughs> I did no research at all. Uh, I didn't read uh, even the Wikipedia page about San Francisco. I basically packed in a couple of weeks left. That was it. Wow. Um, and I think uh, I had the kind of a long-lasting culture shock that I'm still recovering from. Because in Russia, people, generally speaking, don't smile. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's kind of changing, but the Russia that I grew up in is um, now a very separate country. It still exists in my psyche and carry it with me. Um, basically, I act like I am still in Russia, and that will probably never really end. So my one of my feet will always be in it, um, and that Russia is also my Russia. You know, uh, in the same way as. Um, People always go on about how you, if you read Russian writers, you get a feeling of what Russia is about, but you don't. If you read about Gogol's Russia, you get Gogol's Russia, which has nothing to do with Russia, and everything to do with his inner turmoils. How do you think that comes through in your current work? Um, oh, I mean, there's a constant paranoia and fear. It's everywhere. Uh, there's a fear of speech, a fear of language. Uh, there's a, a kind of a, a constant sexual tension. I mean, no one has good sex in work ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's always between the lines, but it's never shown. Uh, people can't communicate. Uh, the The concept of human connection is not even given. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything is a monologue, always. Yeah, there is a uh, an air miscommunication. It's like a broken radio, basically. Now, do doing this in your work, do you find yourself kind of resolving that feeling, um, or do you kind of feed into it? Yeah, it definitely has a. I mean, uh, therapeutical is not such a great word. <laughs> yeah, but it does provide a kind of relief. I suppose in exercising these demons, because if I don't do it, it becomes unbearable, and uh, I can't communicate with other people if I don't write. If I don't write about it, you know. Um, but it has no resolution. I know that I will never arrive at an artistic truth, and I have no interest in doing that. And I guess another thing that really characterizes my work is the complete absence of sort of beginning and end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about the process. It's constant repetition. There is uh, people talking about talking and writing about writing, but nothing it gets written, you know. But it's not repetitive. It, it is repetitive. <laughs> I don't. But visually, it's not at all. Oh, all right. Well, that's the thing. I'm I'm really bad at rep- at repeating or copying, <laughs> which is why I do it so much. And you know, when I when I came here, I didn't really have. Uh, this uh, kind of aesthetic and artistic vision that I have now and that I'm more or less married to at this point. And I guess I tried everything. I even tried to do like visual development and just get a job, which I did for about a month. 
<laughs> and uh, I was the only one in a group of like 50 terrible artists that got fired. <laughs> anyway, but so I tried uh, in that kind of job, I had to copy someone else's style and I was absolutely terrible at it. So everything I would draw looked like something else. And um, now what I do is I sometimes just try to copy an artist and I know that I'm really bad at this. And therefore, new Roman stuff comes up. Um, so when you came over, did you have intentions of like becoming an illustrator, becoming an artist? Um, was that just like a way of thrusting yourself into you have to do this and you don't have the option of falling back on your engineering degree? Um, no, I think for uh, for a year I dawdled rather extraordinarily. I don't even know how I spent that year. I produced very little work. Uh, I don't know what I did. I think I was trying to get laid a great deal, mostly unsuccessfully. <laughs> and then, um, then I tried a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I read good comics extremely late. So I didn't read Chris Ware until 25 or 26. <laughs> so when I came to the country, I saw that uh, Dark Horses are the most indie thing there is. And I didn't even know that Drawn Quarterly exists or anything like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't read Mouse or nothing. Um, and I guess I didn't like comics at all. So I read all that stuff, and I was instantly influenced, particularly by Chris Ware and Sass, I would say. Um, now I'm not really influenced by anyone that much. I really like Jason, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, particularly his repetition. I think he's the real master of that uh, in the short stories. Yeah. Um, I really love Tim Hansley. I think he's doing something that no one else does. Mm-hmm. No, Tim Hensley's from another world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think he is tragically underrated and um, should be discussed more widely. <laughs> um, now, the the other part of your work uh, we talked a little bit before is the f the philosophy component and the literature component. Um, how did that become something you'd get into? Because, like, Having English being not your, um, for lack of a better term, I hate this term, uh, your first language. Um, oh, fair enough. <laughs> uh, have it not being, you know, your, you know, what you were used to going in and reading classics um, mm. is not an easy task for most No, but folks. it's easier than talking to people, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I guess I discovered the San Francisco Library, which is great, and it's free, and they had all, all kinds of things. Um, and again, it took me a real long time to get into good literature. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I only read Joyce when I was, I think when I was just graded in school again, so uh, pretty late. Like, when I came to the country, I, I read, like, George Orwell or something. <laughs> Uh, no, not good stuff, really. And um, I think I I kind of accidentally read something of Boris Vian, and through him I found uh, Alfred Jerry, and through him I found Raymond Quinault, and Ulipo, and Georges Perec, and through Georges Perec I found Joyce, and then it was like a chain reaction. 
Mm -hmm. uh, modernism was uh, this uh, kind of extraordinary re revelation for me. Because I don't think I really enjoyed reading before that, you know. And um, I haven't read that much classics, really. Okay. And, uh, well, right now I'm reading Tristram Shandy. Yeah. And uh, it predates the 19th century modern, the 19th century uh, kind of realistic novel and modernism. But it's probably more postmodern than any Pynchon book. I mean, it's exceptionally experimental. Nothing happens in it. It it can't start at all. There is um, in the begin. He constantly goes and quarrels with his critics, with imaginary critics, which I find really endearing. <laughs> and it's uh, kind of something that uh, Flann O'Brien did, in um, at Swim Two Birds. Uh, both also use plagiarism really cleverly, and it's something that I do a great deal. Um, you know, in a sense, uh, opens was basically an exact copy of the opening line of Metamorphosis. And it's kind of a very direct dismissal of plot. It's like I'm saying, I'm not even trying to start this story. Here's the line from another book. There you have it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Plan O'Brien uh, like put in a line uh, of criticism that someone wrote to him into the novel, which is amazing. <laughs> And it's the same, like, The Wasteland was a big influence on me, because it's basically like a pastiche of different things. And right now I'm reading, I'm just finishing Sea by, by Tom McCarthy, and I really love this book. And I think there's a lot of allusions to both Tenton and Kafka in it. And it, it's really weirding me out, because uh, it was written before, in a sense, and uh, I only read it now, and I realized that in a lot of way, he was kind of doing what I was trying to do, but much better, <laughs> and without pictures. Now, in a in a sense, um, yeah. it's your first big, um, well, medium size. <laughs> big for you. Let's I suppose so. It, uh, it took a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, what were? Did you have? Um, what came out as your original intention um like what kind of process went into that book when you compare it from doing generally like i don't know four or five pages max mm -hmm. um and somewhat you know most of your stuff is pretty narratively um bereft obtuse <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> um yeah but you know i should say that uh, people do accuse me of this kind of willful obscurantism, but it's not that. I think there's kind of a certain laziness to modern culture, and people don't really want to look up anything. But mm -hmm. I don't have anything in my work that is uh, impenetrable. Basically, if you spend like an extra minute, it'll all be clear. Or if you look up a a line or text or something like this. Well, I wouldn't say impenetrable. Like, if it was impenetrable, we wouldn't be talking I mean, right now. I was doing, <laughs> right, I was doing a lecture somewhere, and someone asked, I really like your drawings, but I, is this text just random words? I mean, do they mean anything? And <laughs> which was really amusing, but yeah, they do actually mean something. I mean, everything is extremely logical. There's uh, almost nothing emotional in my writing at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like a good, I'd say like a good comparison, I'm not trying to say this like to say this is influence on you, um, but a good comparison of like contemporary 
using that is um, Panther's Giant. I think is it Jimbo and Purgatory, the big red one? You know, I haven't read him. Um, I've read some of his stuff and uh, actually didn't understand it quite so <laughs> Uh, but th that was a really long time ago. I should, you know, it's it's all out of print as far as I know, right? Yeah, you but know. I mean, if you know the right comic stores, you can mm -hmm. you can find a copy. Um, out of print's kind of an abstract. Yeah, I definitely I can't afford to have an opinion on him because I haven't done my work. Um, but the reason I'm saying it is he d doesn't matter if you haven't read it. Um, <laughs> I, re I recommend reading because I really love this book. Is yeah, oh, I definitely will. Um, he does uh, Jimbo going through Purgatory, um, Aladante, and there's like mm -hmm. 33 pages with the 33 cantos. Um, but the dialogue in the each page, it's not a, it's not like he's writing the characters talking to each other, blah blah. blah. They're mm -hmm. all taken from specific uh, classical, uh, ancient. Um, like you'll have um, the Aeneid with uh, something from the Bible mm -hmm. with something from uh, Milton like all these right. different things um, creating the conversation mm -hmm. which is a really exciting thing for me it's like unpacking that and uh, when you realize where these things are from um, and how that comes into the conversation um, I don't know. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, I really like that idea. I like this idea of um, an anonymity of the author. Mm -hmm. I definitely, I detest the concept of uh, you know, human interest and self-expression. I never want to say anything. It has no interest for me. And I think in kind of a, a very deliberate rejection of uh, this kind of sentimental humanism, you inadvertently express yourself. Like, there is no chance that you really can paste together, even if you just take bits from other books and string them together, it will not be an, like an accidental arrangement. Yeah. It will be very much your self-expression. But it has to be involuntary, otherwise it um, has no interest to in me. Yeah. Um, but okay, back to innocence. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. you have a publicist sitting behind you telling you to push your book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a little tucker on my shoulder, <laughs> tucking away. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, it started as a kind of a stupid idea in 2010. I wrote it a short story, uh, not a very good one, but I always liked that idea. It's something about it just amused me a great. It not amused me, but rather bothered me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I like to have a really stupid idea as kind of a and a starting point. I have you know, no interest in grand concepts of love or relationships or whatever. Um, and then I started writing it again uh, when Nobro asked me to do a book. Um, that just f felt like a, a good starting point. I completely wrote it. It had pretty much nothing in common with the first version, except for the opening line, which I stole from Kafka, <laughs> blatantly. Um, so I completely rewrote it, and um, then I rewrote it, I think, about three or four other times. And each time it would change quite a lot, and um, it would get shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's really, really condensed. And there's actually very little text in the books itself. And what I wanted to do with it is I wanted to and I have a very dreamlike feel to it. Mm -hmm. You know, the actual first spoken line is almost uh, complete gibberish. And then um, 
I mean, it's not gibberish. It makes sense to me, <laughs> but it sounds like gibberish. And then it sort of untangles and it goes back and forth. And you'll notice that in the middle, there is a kind of a little area of lucidity when they don't really have a lot of puns. And then towards the end, it gets sleepy again, basically, and uh, you know approximates this moment of wakefulness. Um, and I generally have a kind of a propensity for puns, which may be explained with you know English being my second language, and I'm really fascinated by it. Um, you know, it. I, I know that people do have that, or at least kind of imagine that that may explain it. And I don't know how how fair that is, but. Um, I mean, premise herself, the protagonist of the book, makes only one pun. Everyone else has tons, and they're all kind of, they're not really puns, but they're just a way of speaking, mm -hmm. you know. But then, of course, everything is channeled through her uh, vision. Like, the whole book is about perception and nothing else, really. And um, it's all a monologue. There are no characters in it. I mean, there are the characters, but they're like placeholders. They're like actors. Uh, so if, you know, her father figure says, if someone sees you walking down the street and the seizure is written like seizure, mm -hmm. that seems like a good way of uh, writing like three sentences in one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the kind of language and logic that you have, have in a dream, right? Yeah. And um, uh, it seems, again, like this... Uh, deciphering and obfuscation at the same time. And uh, there's a, a kind of a midpoint when the, the dream, it, it moves towards wakefulness, but it doesn't quite get there. And I like the idea that there is no resolution at all. It doesn't let, end like a Tomina story or something. It doesn't even have the concept of resolution. It's all about the process of unraveling and uh, adding more layers. Yeah, it's like... Make any it, sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it was interesting, because the ending, I was like, oh, it's done. Yeah. It was uh, like... The, the ending was added, you know, at a later point. Like, I didn't want to have that, but um, I realized that it's kind of necessary, because people might not quite get it. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it would be really obvious, because they're kind of dropped all the way that she's... Well, I don't want to give the whole yeah. thing away. It's not like uh, anything will change if I explain what it is. <laughs> it's not really about the story. There are all spoilers or whatever. Um, but yeah, I did feel like it's a necessary sacrifice to make it clear, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I were a little more dedicated, I would kind of stick to my original vision. But I'm not. I don't really care. Um... Now, do you feel like a certain affection for this book uh, compared with the other stuff? Uh, you know, it's an, it's hard to say because it was so long in the making. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, after I finished initial drawings, which was, uh, I think, about two years ago, and then just sat for a while, and I kind of changed a few things here and there, and then redrew, I think, five or ten pages. Uh, I, I couldn't look at it at all, and I absolutely hated it. Because especially in the beginning, I think um, in the first half, like every other page is redrawn about five times or four times. Then individual panels are redrawn hundreds of times. It was just uh, an absolute nightmare. And I think I wanted to have my first book to be a really genuine cartoonist experience. So instead of using a light box, um, 
I just penciled everything on big Bristol and I inked it Dan Clough style. Oh wow! Of course, that was a you know that was not uh, what people should do in this century. <laughs> no, well, I don't think there's anything that pe- that cartoonists should or well, yeah, shouldn't yeah. do. I, mean, I definitely learned from the process, but I think um, this approach is not really applicable to my style mm-hmm. because I draw really fast and I. Uh, kind of try to make as many mistakes as possible like kind of use deliberately bad materials um, like the the better I get at drawing and right now I'm I'm pretty good at drawing <laughs> <laughs> the less I am impressed by that <laughs> and sort of I want it to look very handmade and rough and um, I know that if I kind of have that counterintuitive impulse then um, my skill will go against it by default and something new will emerge that I have very little control over. And that is kind of an approximation of an unconscious thought. Of course, I can't really have an unconscious drawing because um, it would go before my head makes a gesture. Yeah, but yeah. I try to have as much accident as is humanly possible. <laughs> and are you you're allowing yourself to have those accidents with this book? Yeah, there, there are some. Well, that's why I had to redraw so much, because some of them were bad accidents. <laughs> You know, now I use a light box, I go uh, over something, I don't like it, I just draw it again, it's not a problem. Here I I would have a breakdown, (laughs) (laughs) or several. Yeah, coloring took just ages. Um, Because uh, again, with drawings, uh, I think another thing that people misinterpret me rather annoyingly is that I have kind of an illustratory style. Uh, and I guess my work is kind of visually fanciful. I mean, it's very far removed from naturalism. Mm-hmm. But it's not because I'm showing off how good I am at drawing or whatever. Uh, but it's rather because I'm using drawing as part of writing. It's kind of a free and direct discourse in visuals, you know. Like so, you're not uh, scripting, you're staying away from yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, usually, you know, when I have a writing that boils down to a page, it's... Uh, more often than now, you know, three, four pages, uh, which I rewrite over and over again, and uh, like 80% of it uh, becomes drawings. Mm-hmm. It's funny, too, because we actually haven't even discussed illustration at all. Oh, yeah. Um, which is fine. Like Yeah, but, uh, you know, I have to talk about it quite a lot, because I'm teaching now. And <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, the thing about illustration for me, um, or at least... I don't know, for you, like, do you see that as separate from, like, when you're doing commercial work? Um, do you kind of have to pull yourself out artistically to kind of yeah, meet absolutely. the need of the client? Uh, well, I think uh, Sass defined it rather delightfully as a prostitution of style. Uh, I may be mistaken, <laughs> but mm. I, uh, whoever said that, I like it. Um, yeah, I think there's some truth to it, and also a good illustration assignment is a collaboration with an art director. You know, it shouldn't be, should have nothing to do with self-expression at all. Yeah. If less so than um, art, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I I do enjoy it in a way that um, I need to have something that I don't really care about that much, and that allows me more formal experimentation. And uh, I certainly don't appreciate the way I'm pigeonholed, to put it mildly. 
I, I'm sorry, I'm really big in geriatrics. I constantly have to draw like old people looking lonely or something from the past. And New Yorker pretty much exclusively gives me stuff from the past, mm-hmm. uh, which is not very relevant. And, uh, I, yeah, I think people do mistake my interest in kind of all kinds of art, which invariably you know, includes art from the past to kind of a general nostalgia, which I don't have at all. Uh, but I did, uh, you know, I did a cover of Dubliners, which was rather amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not really happy with it at all, because it was too much of a dream assignment. <laughs> the, the, the best work I do is stuff I don't particularly care about. But this was a book that um, I really adore. Uh, I mean, not as much as Ulysses. Like, I, I don't want cover of Ulysses. It seems pointless. Well, <laughs> like, how do you visualize that? Yeah, that especially in in that series, you know, you had to do kind of. They would hire cartoonists like Chris Ware and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth did a cover of Dorothy Parker, and uh, Dan Clough did Frankenstein. Um, so I was given Dumbliners, which is fair enough. Um, and I had to to draw something. Like it couldn't be an abstract cover. And um, it didn't feel right, basically. Yeah. I tried to instead of uh, kind of having any redundancy or just drawing what's in the book, which I had to do to some extent. I wanted to really approximate the style in the drawings, rather the style in the approach, to have uh, an overarching feeling of the book, the atmosphere, exposed. So, you know, the character, if you look at the cover, they don't really correspond, and, like, each one of them could be someone else, and it doesn't matter. But it's kind of creating your vision, I guess, that's what they Yeah, want. well, exa- I mean, I did kind of uh, follow my uh, general aesthetic and moral vision that, so none of the people on the cover have eye contact, for instance. But if you look closely, their lines are all intertwined. So there is a connection in their deliberate disconnection or misconnection. In the failure to connect, basically. Well, this brings me kind of into what you're doing with Yellow Zine um, Mm. and talking about personal work. And this is kind of your immediate um, outlet Mm -hmm. for personal work, I guess. Yeah, it's aimed uh, at me. I am the target audience and the real audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, th- this is the closest I think I have to personal work and the comfy sofa and stuff like that. Uh, that's the the wristograph scene that you did with yeah. Brian Sands. That not many well, I mean, not see. with him. I did it on his machine. He didn't publish it or anything. No, he was in the room when you stapled. He was not in the room. Oh, no? <laughs> <laughs> He would not allow this to happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hopefully. No, I just crawled in in the middle of the night. Uh, just pushed the window open. Yeah, shut all over his popular things and did my weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, if anyone's wondering, no one noticed. <laughs> oh. No. Uh, one of the particular things in the yellow scene that really stuck out to me was in the three and a half issue. Um, you did a jazz strip. Oh, how do you have this? Oh, right, through that. The Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, I didn't print it or anything. It's like a secret zine. I think <laughs> you're the only person who saw that. 
So of course I ask for the most obscure thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it. I hadn't seen it before. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, what are we saying? Uh, I want to talk about that particular strip, uh, the jazz one. Oh yeah. Because uh, I found it really uh, fascinating and uh, exciting, um, just the way you'd composed it. Even though no one will see this, so just pretend <laughs> that I'm you can see I'm this. I'm trying to remember what what it is. Um, it it just had like this like really like freeform feeling to it, just like it was like. Oh, I think exciting. I was reading uh, Donald Bartholomew's uh, King of Jazz. Okay. And that's kind of a, r a riff on that, basically. Wait, I'm gonna try to find it on my computer. Oh, I found it. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it has in line West Montgomery never once wet his wedlock, <laughs> which is rather amusing to me. And uh, yeah, miserable hopeless. Uh, God's mercy, Percy's and was blazing. Shelley, wink of winks. Yeah. Uh, wh what are you saying about this? I don't know. I just found it really exciting. That that okay. strip just kind of jumped out. Yeah, well, like, this was uh, like about I think five six page story about this uh, Frankie at the funeral and uh, and yeah, I condensed it into one page basically. Okay. Uh, I I like the idea that um, oh yeah, the phrase that has sparked it all is send this jazz bag, Frankie. I can't take it, lukewarm. Uh, here's a tenor, take this jazz to the nearest whore and fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of something immaterial being taken to a courtesan uh, to make it hotter <laughs> and then return that jazz into a place and everyone enjoys it. It's rather charming, I think. <laughs> now you... I seem to remember once you were talking about doing stand-up comedy. Oh, <laughs> You know, I, well, I do the things when I tell people I'm doing something before starting to do it. And then I think, well, everyone will talk to me about this and I'll be forced to do it. And now I'm starting to regret this because I don't really want to do it anymore. <laughs> um, did, did you actually try doing it? Yeah, I did it for a month. At, oh, wow. At, uh, there's one open mic that was just so depressing that... Uh, I was immediately drawn to it. You just wanted to make it more depressing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was really weird. I had uh, I wrote about three or four sets. I think they were okay. Um, you know, there was all of crap that I kind of discarded in the process. Uh, one of them, I sort of I performed it three times. And twice, everyone laughed. And it just went down so well. They even laughed at the bits that I didn't want them to laugh at. So I started picking on them and telling them not to laugh and you know it, it went exactly how I wanted it to <laughs> and the third time I did it it was complete silence and, um, you know the whole bit is kind of what I do it's sort of passive aggressive I try to tell a story but I fail at it right and um, the, fir the first two times people got it okay the whole joke is that he's failing to tell a story and the third time they looked at me and said well he's just he's not very good right and in the end, I sort of blamed the audience for not getting that. And they all look really offended. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of I got out really angry, but then I thought, that's, that's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to take my revenge, and probably in the next scene or something, I'll, I'll have like, a really dramatic story set in, on an open mic night. Um, but, I mean, I went to open mics, which is the worst 
part of comedy, and I don't yeah. really like a lot of comedy. There are very few things that I like. Um, and, you know, I might if someone invites me to like something more artsy, I would do it again definitely. But open mics, it's all really sexist, um, which is kind of shocking to me. It was in San Francisco in particular, like a lot of kind of semi-homophobic jokes, not intensely hateful, but just really ignorant, tasteless. Yeah, very tasteless. Um, definitely not the sort of artsy shit that I like. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, those bros, I um, mean, most of them don't get me at all. But it was really interesting to present myself to an audience that is so massively unfit for my material. Yeah. You know. I have uh, I have a friend who's a performer and a stand-up comic, and I hung out with him and some of his f- stand-up comic friends once, and it's just like, this is... Yeah. I ended up getting an argument with one of them <laughs> uh about politics. I was like, You oh, have yeah, no don't, don't idea. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was not a good scene for me to Yeah, you know, there I think uh, I only like Stuart Lee. He's like the only and um what's his name? Simon Monnery, who is pretty much unknown. Stuart Lee is fairly well known and that's kind of surprising because his work is quite strange. Um yeah, but I don't like any other stand up comedians. Now you're gonna do um you're gonna do uh you're gonna be at Mission Comics Yeah on, on uh Friday. Six uh no, that's Saturday I think. Saturday, well, sorry. Yeah, September sixth. Yeah. I'm sorry. On Saturday you'll be at Mission Comics. Uh, launching uh Innocence. Um, Innocence. Innocence. Uh not Innocence. Um, it, or is it, that a, or is that a particular pun? Is that that like the? Uh, he just noticed. Oh, I already noticed. I just yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of I thought that if someone pronounced it as innocence, I would be really indignant and say, "No, that's not what it's called." I would never write a book with innocence in the title. And then chuckle. I mean, the whole point is that no one dares say that word. You know, it's a dirty word. Yeah, they're just they're incapable of saying it. It's not a word in their vocabulary. You know. Yeah, it's not even an anathema. They're ju- it doesn't exist. Um, and s- then you're going to be at SPX in a week and a bit. Um, yeah. With the no brow table. Yeah, uh, I don't know exactly when, but I'll be hanging around, and you can recognize me by my air of despair. And you'll the have be- the beard. And the beard, yeah. The wonderful beard. Are you doing any panels? I can't remember. Um, I'm probably going to Italy in November uh, to Bologna. There's a festival, something like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, panels at SPX. Yeah. No, no. Okay. I'm of no value to the panelists. I wouldn't agree. <laughs> um, I think you're pretty... Uh... Uh, I'll be in my room talking to myself, so if you want to hang outside the window and eavesdrop. There we go. That'll be delightful. The one-man panel. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now the one we didn't talk about uh, Picnic Ruined, your retrofit book, uh, yeah. which came out, what six months ago? Uh, no, exactly a year. Actually. Oh wow! Yeah, it's just no one read it. <laughs> I read it. Oh, um, your pseudo autobio book. Um, well, it's not autobio at all. No, I mean it. It is about autobio. Basically, okay. I don't. I don't really like autobio comics, and this was kind of an attempt to make sense of that. And I thought the only way to do it reasonably would be to put myself of like four years ago mm-hmm. 
and uh, uh, to get all the self-loathing out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I think I was more interested in kind of a formal idea of um, of how any attempt at recreation and memory is invariably a fiction, and how the very concept of autobiography is uh, flawed by default, and it's pretty much pointless. The futility of that appealed to me. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very much a formal exploration of that. And also I wanted to kind of approximate a drunken stream of mind and the uh, self-effacing, kind of constant rewriting and self-censorship that goes in that process. The drunken, so what, did you do some of the comics while you're drunk? No, I don't really drink anymore because okay. I kind of ruined my... Uh, health really badly, <laughs> but um, well, every night I still drink. But I think I liked it too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you getting a book done after three years is nothing compared to just having a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, if anyone's listening and aspiring cartoonist, just get drunk. It's not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> You won't want to do books. You'll find something better to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Roman, for oh, thank you. Uh, taking the time. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work, and I've been bugging you for a couple of years now. Yeah, I think it was three or four years. Yeah, and you kept saying no, no, yeah. no. Did I say yes this time? I think your publisher said yes for you. Uh, <laughs> well... <laughs> Then it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So reminder, folks, I've been talking to Roman Miradov, and his new book is, in a sense, uh, Lost and Found, which you'll find in good comic stores at some point. But if you want it sooner, he'll be at Mission Comics on Saturday, September 6th, and at SPX, uh, September 13th and 14th, and somewhere in Italy in the fall, hopefully. <laughs> I hope so. I hope you get Yeah, just wander around Italy and you'll find me in a kind of Steinbergian fashion. Go.
Getting close.